Good morning. <laughs> I'm used to being able to hold my music like this and look at people. So, whoa, I broke it. There we go. So sorry. <laughs> it's a music thing. Sorry. <laughs> um, Thanks, Anu, and uh, thank you, Shainu, for your lovely introduction. Um, if you'll join me, I'd just like to jump right in and pray, because we can't do this without God. So, <sighs> Heavenly Father, thank you so much for all you've done to bring each of us here today. Thank you for your word, that it's vibrant and alive, and has so much to teach us. Open our hearts, I pray, and let my words be yours alone that the message you gave to Paul to share with the Philippians and us today would speak to our hearts and change us as we read, listen, and learn together this morning. Amen. So some of you may know that I grew up mostly in California, and my lifelong best friend is there, and we almost never get to see each other. In reality, we hardly ever even talk by phone. We mostly just text each other now and then, and yet... I still know that she would drop everything to be there for me if I needed her. You might know what I mean. You might have that one friend you've known since forever, who even after surviving the brutality of adolescence and braces and acne and social drama and questionable fashion choices, even after all of that, they love you for who you are, their family. When you do reach out to text that friend, you skip the small talk. You jump right in and get to the meat of life. You talk about the stuff that matters, and you encourage, inspire, and sharpen one another. It might just be a bunch of heart emojis, but they know that your love for them is real. Well, Paul had worked to bring the gospel to the Philippians, and by the grace of God, they had become his brothers and sisters in Christ. They had become family. His love for them was real. And when Paul writes his letter to them about 10 years later, he's still deeply concerned for them, and he's checking in on them. He's modeling the exact thing he's been encouraging them to do. He's partnering with them by reaching out to them. It was Shinu who pointed out to me today, we would send a text message. It's so true. If Paul were texting us today, he would say, work out your salvation by the power of God within you and shine as a light in the world. And that's the text you would pin to the top of your text list so that you could keep coming back to it for encouragement and inspiration. Work out your salvation by the power of God within you and shine as a light in the world. But Paul didn't have Verizon, so he wrote a letter instead. Let's look together at how he went about saying this. Andrew did a great job of illuminating the first part of this chapter for us, where Paul has just finished discussing humility and pointing to Christ as the ultimate example of that humility. Now, as we move forward in chapter 2, we're going to spend most of our time diving into verses 12 to 18, where the meat of this message is. And then at the end, we'll look briefly at the closing verses for some examples and application. So for now, let's look where he begins the next part of his letter in verse 12, with this big attention-getting word, therefore. He's summing things up now. He's offered Christ's example of humility and sacrifice, and now he's giving us the big and so. 
he's going to tell us how we're to respond to that information. And he says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. I want to talk more in just a minute about what it means to work out your salvation, but first let's take a look at the beginning of what he has to say. Remember that bond of brotherhood in Christ that Paul felt for them? That love that inspires him to reach out to them? He calls them my beloved. He isn't checking in on them out of arrogance or superiority, but out of love, compassion, humility, and grace. They are his beloved. And he says to them in verse 12, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence. Now, Shinu mentioned that I'm a teaching artist in my part-time job, and I visit classrooms for about an hour and teach a little intro to opera class. Let me tell you, there is nothing that tells me the heart of the students, the true culture of that classroom, than what happens to the student's behavior when the primary classroom teacher has to step out of the room. Do they genuinely love learning and respect authority and so they listen attentively and continue to participate actively in my lesson? I can't even say that with a straight face. <laughs> or the second she leaves the room, are they disrespectful, chatty, loud, and rude to me? Do we continue to enjoy a rich learning environment? Or does it fall apart and become open season on the nerdy opera lady? Do they obey the same way in her presence as they do in her absence? Paul wants the Philippians' obedience to happen because it is evidence of the true character of their heart. He encourages them to obey because it's who they are, not just because their teacher's watching. And it bears pointing out that Paul is just the messenger. Our true teacher is God. And in the book of Jeremiah, God tells his people, Can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him? Do I not fill heaven and earth? How great is our God that he will never leave the room. So in the next part of verse 12, Paul tells the Philippians what obedience looks like. Today, when we hear the word obey, we think about rules that need to be followed. But Paul offers a different vision of obedience. Obedience to Paul looks more like living a life that spills over with evidence of God's grace and forgiveness. He tells them to obey when he's not around. And later in verse 12, to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. If you're like me, you're wondering, whoa, now, wait a minute. Did he just say work out? Like, at the gym? Because <laughs> that definitely causes fear and trembling in me. And what does that fancy word, Christian word, salvation mean? In Andrea's words, I'm so glad you asked. Well, let me sum it up. Salvation is the truth that Jesus fulfilled every promise God made to us. And he died to take on the punishment for all of our sin so that we could live as sons and daughters of God. You might be relieved as I was to hear that no, Paul is not telling us to go lift weights until our arms shake. But Paul is telling us to work it out, 
mentally and emotionally, with diligence and dedication, just as we might work out our bodies at the gym. It might mean getting up early to read your Bible or pushing on through a painful time to grow in faith and trust. It might mean working to end a bad habit, like Andrea encouraged us earlier, and replacing it with a good habit as an ongoing act of obedience. Now, I want to be clear here also that Paul is not telling us that we lose our salvation if we don't work it out. Jesus' death on a cross for us and God's welcoming us as his own children can't be undone, and it doesn't need to be redone ever again. It's not something we have to work to earn, but in response to it, we should desire in our hearts and minds to work it out, to live it out. Our response to salvation should be active. If we consider it, study it, work our brain out, blow our mind with it, we will be changed. We will experience an inevitable response. Sometimes that response is calm and meditative. Later in this same letter to the Philippians, Paul calls it a peace that surpasses all understanding. And other times, that response can shake you to your core and cause you to tremble. Have you ever come to church on a Sunday, stressed, mentally working through your to-do list, freaking out because there's no way in the world you can finish that project, run those errands, give that person the time and attention they need? Holy cow, these songs are long. Why are we singing a 17th verse? Right? Or maybe you're just feeling numb, full of doubts, thinking this all sounds like crazy talk, but you're going through the motions. And suddenly, out of nowhere, the words you're singing and the swell of the music penetrates your heart, and you find yourself standing there crying, wanting to drop to your knees in humility and wonder. I ask this partly because I want to think I'm not the only person losing it in the second row every other Sunday. (laughs) You're struck by God's goodness, his faithfulness to break through your heart, to reach out to you and meet you where you are and give you peace and comfort and forgiveness and love. In those moments, you are working out your salvation with fear and trembling, with respect and awe. You might be sitting here thinking, how can I obey all the time and work out my salvation with such dedication when I can't even keep a New Year's resolution to work out my body at the gym with that kind of dedication? Well, we're in luck, weak and foolish sinners. None of this happens by our power. We can't do it by ourselves. Let's keep reading in verse 13 where Paul tells us, For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Yes, we have to show up. The response to our understanding of salvation is our joyful obedience. But everything good that comes from our obedience is God himself working in us. Everything that came together today for you to be here, that was God at work for his good pleasure. Any single word of scripture or seed of understanding that has penetrated your heart today that will linger on in your mind, that is God in you working out your salvation for his good pleasure. 
when you sign up to bring a meal train meal or offer a coworker a helping hand or change the seven millionth diaper. That is the creator of the universe himself at work in your heart to inspire you to want the same things he wants and to cause you to work for his glory. And then Paul goes on to give us some practical instruction to help guide us as we work out our salvation. And he does it with this spectacularly long run-on sentence that we will break down to look at piece by piece. So if you'll read along with me now in verse 14, he tells us, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. Now I have to stop a minute and confess to you that when I got my teaching assignment and read this passage, I felt like just maybe I had been lovingly and creatively called out. There's a messy little corner of my heart that worried that when Colleen and Shainu and Pastor Ajay got together in a room and settled on Philippians as the passage that we would teach on this year, one of them piped up and said, Ooh, for sure, give that part about grumbling to Amy Spencer because she could stand to spend a little quality time with this passage. I worried that they knew, as my husband knows, as some of you know, I am a grumbler. I'm a whiner and a complainer. And sometimes I struggle to stop those snarky, picky, judgy voices in my head. Now, I'm not as prone to disputing and picking fights as I am to grumbling, but maybe you are. Maybe that's your thing. Maybe you struggle with always needing to be right or needing to have the last word. God has seen this behavior before. I mean, who hasn't? To illustrate this, Paul pointed the Philippians back to the history of the Israelites in the time of Moses, using words drawn from the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy. Biblical scholars taking notes out there, you'll find this in Deuteronomy 32. But for now, you don't need to turn there. Let me set the scene for you. At this point in Deuteronomy, the Lord has led the Israelites out of slavery and through the desert for 40 years. And despite his faithfulness to them, they have whined and complained and doubted him every step of the way. And in Deuteronomy chapter 32, Moses pronounces the Lord's judgment on the Israelites with these words. He says, they have dealt corruptly with him. They are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. Now, there's no doubt the Philippians could look around much like we can today and see that they were surrounded by a society of people who were blemished, a crooked and twisted generation. But Paul wanted to see that this behavior was nothing new, but that it wasn't behavior fitting of children of God. So let's add the next part of that beautiful run-on sentence now. Let's start at the beginning of it again. Paul tells them in verse 14, Do all things without grumbling or disputing. On to verse 15. So that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. Hear that again. Among whom you shine as lights in the world. Whoa, you, me, the Philippians. Paul's saying to us, you're different. Because of Jesus' salvation, God is at work inside of you. Because we have him working to change us from the inside out, 
We're more than just good people who are nice and do good deeds. We are fundamentally different from the inside out, shining as lights in the world. You might be thinking, cool, but what light? Where did this idea of light come from? In the Gospel of John, Jesus tells his disciples, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And Paul is telling us that those who have the light of life, those who embrace the saving and transforming love of Jesus and are working out their salvation by the power of God at work within them, will shine that light into the world. Paul has packed such rich instruction into just these few verses. I hope you're still hanging in there with me because he's going to help us out and there's just a little more of this epic sentence to work through. Paul goes on in verse 16 to tell us that this obedience, this change, this shining as a light thing happens when we are holding fast to the word of life. When we're clinging to the living word of God, A pastor named John Piper did a great study on what it means, on what Paul means by holding fast here. He said the idea of holding fast is also used in the New Testament to mean fix your attention, keep a close watch, hold your position. It's a matter of active, focused, and unwavering attention. Don't take your eyes off it. You want to work out your salvation? Work out your Bible. Paul tells them to hold fast to the word of life. Let's look together at what he says in verse 16 through 18. So that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I'm glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you should also be glad and rejoice with me. Paul wants to know that his efforts weren't for nothing. He wants to know that their faith is vibrant and the gospel is alive in Philippi. Even if he's in prison in Rome, and even if he might be put to death for teaching the gospel, even if his life is poured out only so that someone else will grow in faith, Paul is happy for it. And he rejoices. And he tells them that they shouldn't be upset. They should be happy with him and for him. They should rejoice too. After all, Paul himself is working out his salvation by the power of God within him to make him shine as a light in the world. So I told you we'd dig deep into the meat of this passage, and I think we can all agree that was pretty meaty. We won't spend much time on the rest of the chapter, but I want to be sure we take a moment to appreciate what God is doing with the rest of it. Because here's where I feel like Paul really gets me. He knows that we're a people who can be doubtful and skeptical, who need to see real-world, relatable examples to reassure us that this kind of active and vibrant faith is within our own capabilities. And so... Rather than just ending his instructions with rejoice, sealing that letter and slapping a stamp on it, he takes the time to reassure me that this is something that normal, everyday believers can do. How does Paul reassure me? Enter Timothy and Epaphroditus in verse 19. 
Just to get you up to speed on the first of these two gentlemen, Paul had met and ministered to Timothy in Lystra, and Timothy had left home to join Paul in ministry. Paul became his mentor, and Timothy became a trusted co-worker and a faithful friend. In verse 19 to 24, you can read along with me here, Paul says to the Philippians, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare, for they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me, and I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. Paul is showing them a real-world example of someone living out the instructions he's given. Timothy's genuinely concerned for the Philippians. He's a model of humility and service, working not for his own glory, but for the advancement of the gospel and the glory of God. He's proven the nature of his heart to the Philippians. They've seen him firsthand serving Paul as a son would a father and working in ministry by his side. To them, Timothy's just a normal guy who's dedicated his life to Jesus and is working out his salvation by the power of God within him to shine as a light in the world. But Paul says he still needs Timothy with him. He can't send him right away. So he's sending them someone they will be even more excited to see. Let's look together at verse 25 through 30. Starting in verse 25, Paul says, I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have had sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. This totally reminds me of those videos you see online. You know those videos where a wife is talking to a daytime talk show host and she's talking to him about her soldier husband who she hasn't seen in at least a year and he's stationed in some faraway dangerous place and she's totally anxious and just hopes and prays that he will live so that they can be reunited one day again. And we feel her yearning and her anxiety for him. And we're in awe of the strength and heroism necessary for his service. And then he sneaks up behind her with a bouquet of roses and their eyes meet and she flings herself at him. And we all sit there in front of our computers sobbing like idiots. That's this moment that Paul is setting up for the Philippians. All right, so maybe not exactly the same, and Epaphroditus probably wasn't carrying roses, but he was their guy, their boy next door, who went into ministry with Paul, leaving them and striking out for the heroic, dangerous, and righteous job of spreading the good news of Jesus Christ. They had sent him to deliver their gift of financial support, uh, financial support to Paul, and he'd gotten sick. 
really sick, like definitely should have died sick. And that was the last they had heard. They could only assume he was dead, but they had been holding out hope. And here he is, bringing them a letter from Paul. So look to him, Paul says, your friend and brother, your hometown hero, Epaphroditus, who's been a fellow worker, a soldier, a messenger, a minister, and God spared him so that we could all rejoice in his recovery and in his return to you. This is not some unattainably tall order that only perfect people can achieve. Paul makes it clear that there are plenty of people to look to for examples and inspiration. We're surrounded by examples of believers in the Bible and next to us in this room who are working out their salvation by the power of God within them to shine as a light in the world. It's because of someone like this that I became a Christian. When I was in junior high, I had a couple of friends who were different. Their parents were different. Their home lives were different. And you know, I might have thought it was a little weird that Liz Brockle's parents had some couples over from the church to pray in the new year instead of watching the ball drop and drinking champagne like all the other adults that I knew. But you know, I also knew that Liz wasn't gossipy. She was different. I knew she was a safe friend I could trust, who I knew as an anxious and insecure kid, I was drawn to her. I wanted to know what she knew. When I heard her pray, I wanted to be able to talk to God that way myself, and I wanted to understand Jesus the way that she did. God gave me my own personal Epaphroditus my own hometown relatable example. Liz's love of Jesus, excuse me, the act of her working out her salvation by her obedience to God was driven by God at work within her. And I saw her shine as a light in my world. If you're here today and you have a relationship with Jesus, What does it look like for you to work out your salvation? What if I asked you not how you work out your salvation, but how do you live it out? Are you working out how to partner with other believers, maybe even just texting them like Paul might have, with a word of encouragement and inspiration? Is it that New Year's resolution you knew would fizzle out by February? Or is it a lifestyle of obedience springing forth as evidence of God at work within you? Do you stand apart as the person who won't gossip or grumble at the water cooler? Are you noticeably different from this crooked and twisted generation? Do you strive to understand what Jesus has done for you and hold fast to the word of life? I am not asking you this because I am rocking this by any means. (laughs) I'm calling myself out and challenging myself and encouraging us to challenge one another. Because that's part of this whole partnership in the gospel thing. To encourage and instruct, to sharpen and inspire. I'm grateful for you and for me that God is at work in us to change us from the inside out for his good pleasure. 
I pray for all of us that in our daily workout of reading our Bible, talking and listening to God, obeying his commands, partnering with one another and serving him joyfully, that we will shine as lights in the world and that others will see and be drawn to that light. And that when they ask us about that light, we will spill over with the joy of God within us and share the gospel openly and passionately. If you're here today and you don't have a relationship with Jesus, if you're still not sure what you think about all of this, let me encourage you to invite God into your heart to begin that good work. I know that Paul has given a lot of meaty instruction here, but it's important that we don't walk away from this thinking that our salvation is something that's either earned or maintained by our good deeds and exemplary behavior. Paul wants us to understand that we don't work out our salvation and live in obedience by our own power, but God himself is at work within us. So start that conversation with God. Ask him for clarity. Ask him to help you work it out. None of us have it figured out completely. Paul didn't say, work it out once and when you're done, you're gonna shine as a light. It's active and continuous. It's nurtured by partnership and community. Like Andrea said earlier, we're called to have a mindset of we. Look to other believers like Paul, like Timothy, like Epaphroditus, like Shinu, like Andrea, like the person sitting next to you and see what this looks like in real life. See that they are not perfect, but that God is at work within them. And he's at work within you. Come join us as we do it together. Come work out your salvation by the power of God within you and shine as a light in the world. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for this great gift you've given us in Paul's letter to the Philippians. Thank you for your living word. Help us to hold fast to it. Show us how to work out our salvation, to strive daily toward a deeper understanding of the depth of your love for us, the enormity of Jesus' sacrifice for us, and the thoroughness of your forgiveness and grace. And change us, we pray, from the inside out. Make us stand apart in obedience and joy, and by your grace, make us shine as lights in the world, to your great glory. Amen.